0: Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He saw early reports of Pope Benedict that the last words on his lips that were articulate before he died were, Jesus, I love you. Now, since then, I've seen others that said it was, Lord, I love you. But I think we know that whether or not the name is there that the Lord he invokes at such a time is the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole focus of his life. For all his erudition and ability to articulate deep and profound truths, he was absolutely clear that the heart of the faith is a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. I often come back to the words from his inaugural homily, and I put some of them in our newsletter for this month, which was printed just before uh, word of his death. Only where God is seen does life truly begin. Only when we meet the living God in Christ do we know what life is. We're not some casual and meaningless product of evolution Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. There's nothing more beautiful than to be surprised by the gospel, by the encounter with Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than to know him and to speak to others of our friendship with him. That's from that homily. Words in the last gospel that we read at every Mass, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus' own words from John 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Pope Benedict preparing for heaven and thinking about the glories that are there and particularly the meeting with the Lord Always the contrast there in the faithful believer looking ahead to what the world so often sets before us about heaven and what heaven is, and the outrage that often comes up when one dares to suggest that somebody's loved one may not perhaps qualify for those heavenly glories, but heaven as that happy place that God somehow owes to us. Um, you know, we're entitled to it. At the end, it's the place where we put off all of the things here and we step into well, what's often pictured as the place of perpetual self-indulgence. I think of a song by a particular group that was about no consequences, how wonderful it would be if we could live this life and do what we want and there were no consequences. And for many, that's the vision of heaven. But that focus on the self, Scripture tells us the church has taught through the ages, that's a picture not of heaven, but of hell, where the self is the center, where we're only concerned about ourselves. The heart of heaven, in contrast, is that unmitigated presence of the Lord, the Lord that we are to come to know and to love in this life because He comes to be with us in our smallness, in our brokenness, to enter in, to draw us to himself. We heard in words at the beginning, again from John 14, Jesus speaking to his disciples about going and preparing a place. And the key to all of that is not just, I'm getting you a mansion ready where you'll go and live and whoop it up in the days to come, but I go to prepare a place that, I might return and take you to be with me, that where I am you may be also. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He, shall, he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Sin is that separation from God in whom is the life. The separation gone and God dwelling in the midst. Well, the language used at that point ought to ring in our ears the the words of John 1. And this whole business we celebrate in the incarnation of God becoming fleshed and dwelling among us. Um, the Greek there, skenao, as the, the verb to dwell, and skene as his temple or his tabernacle in our midst. Well, it's that language that's again echoed in the Revelation. Skene is a is a tent, it's a covering. There's some sense often of the the temporary dwelling, but much more in the words of the Lord. It's his presence with us as we move through the journey, as we walk through this life, as we live here, and eternity is the fullness of that. It's again him with his people, and there's this wonderful mystery, this great secret about the living out of the Christian life in the full sacramental union with our Lord, is that what we begin now is what is ours into eternity. The Lord who meets us in the Blessed Sacrament is that same Lord who met his disciples raised from the dead to pour out his Spirit upon them, to draw them in his life. heavenly glories aren't something that we're owed by God even though he created us for them. Sin weighs upon us but he comes into our midst to take that sin from us to open the way to reconciliation. None of us merits the glory of heaven not even a holy pope. And if you've read anything of Pope Benedict, particularly in reflections as he prepared for death, you know that he was profoundly aware of that weakness and that frailty and the need for all of us for that grace of God. Romans 3. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word expiation there that others translate as propitiation is hilasterion. Some of you have heard me talk about this one many times before, that the standard Greek word for a sacrifice of that order is hilasmus. Hilasterion is a unique word that gets used in the New Testament, only twice. And the other time is in the letter to the Hebrews, where it refers very specifically in the context to the mercy seat, the atonement covering over the Ark of the Covenant. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the word that is used for that atonement covering. Here, as it comes up, it's an unusual word to use if all we're saying of Christ is that He's the sacrifice if we understand that here those words are that he is the mercy seat, that covering over the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember there as God set it out, there are the two figures, the carved cherubim, who are facing each other, wings overstretched. And it's there that in the wilderness, in the Holy of Holies, the cloud of the Lord's presence comes down. It was Pope Benedict, in fact, describing things of that that gave me the image that's just always stuck with me of this is understood as this is where the the blood of the people's sacrifice on the Day of Atonement is laid, marking the horns of that altar, as it were, there upon the mercy seat and the understanding that the presence of the Lord comes down and meets with the people's sacrifice and that's where atonement is made. And that, Paul tells us, is in Christ, the Lord who comes to be with us, who comes to give us that which we cannot merit, that we cannot demand of Him, that He doesn't owe us as a as a wage. In fact, our wages are due for our sin, and the wage is death. But He offers us that gift of Himself in Christ, that gift of everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There's a judgment that comes. In that whole business of what is our due, what are we owed? We understand that we are all called to account. We've got the words in the psalm that that ring there Old Testament words and yet filled with that hope that is in God alone. If thou, O Lord, wilt be extreme to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who may abide it? But there is forgiveness with thee, therefore shalt thou be feared. The fear of the Lord, the fear that draws us to him as he draws near to us, as we were starting to pick up in... Matins today in reading from Isaiah of him before that vision of the Lord where he's on his face before him, completely undone, exposed in his sin by the light of God's presence. And yet at the same time, a fear that overwhelms, and yet in the light of which we see God as he is, we see some glimpse of his holiness some glimpse of our unworthiness and yet wonderfully the touch of his love. The psalmist trusts, he hopes, he waits for the Lord, he longs for the Lord, even though he lives in something of the fear of the holiness of his approach, knows that if he counts on himself, he has nothing to claim. Yet he longs for that presence, he says, like the watchman for the morning. Isaiah is touched by the burning coal, is raised up and able to not only hear and receive God's word, but to respond. And I think then about those further words in Romans, and I think about some words that have emerged of a, a letter that Pope Benedict wrote early last year, contemplating where he was as he neared the ends of his life, Echoing what we hear in Romans. From Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Is it Jesus Christ who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Our Pope Emeritus wrote, Quite soon I shall find myself before the final judge of my life. Even though, as I look back on my long life, I can have great reason for fear and trembling, I am nonetheless of good cheer, for I trust firmly that the Lord is not only the just judge, but also the friend and brother who himself has already suffered for my shortcomings and is thus also my advocate, my paraclete. In light of the hour of judgment, the grace of being a Christian becomes all the more clear to me, It grants me knowledge and indeed friendship with the judge of my life and thus allows me to pass confidently through the dark door of death. I think about my encounters with Pope Benedict. I never met him personally. All through the writing, though I remember when he was named as Pope and just... For what little I knew about him, it was enough that when the word came, there was, a, there was something in my own spirit that bore witness uh, that this was very much of the Lord, uh, a work of the Spirit. I had no idea what difference it would make for us as Anglicans in those days, what difference it would make for me in terms of my vocation and this strange and mysterious door opened into Catholic priesthood. But I knew that it was of God and the more that I turned to his writing, the more often I found that same kind of witness. Uh, some of you know that George MacDonald is someone whose writings have been really important to me and particularly in his fairy tales and in his children's writings. There were just but in his novels, again and again those times where I would read something and say, I know that's true, it just would ring Somewhere deep in my own spirit and reading Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, so often that sense, well, we knew him as the biblical Pope. And Scripture has long been the fire that drives my heart. I picked up his Jesus of Nazareth and was at the time on a holiday and struck by how often I hit passages that I would want to share with evangelical friends that just spoke about the heart of the gospel and so intimately the sense of, of that relationship with Christ as the everlasting word. Every year in scripture class, I bring the students back to the sense of, of Jesus at the heart of everything, the center, the key to the whole of scripture. The whole understanding of the revelation of God. And there's a, a section where he's speaking about Rabbi Jacob Neusner's book on Jesus, on spending a day with Jesus, and coming back in his kind of his imaginative walking through end of the day to debrief with an old rabbi, and the questions of well. You know, this Jesus that you're talking about, well, how has he treated the law? How the law had been understood, how it had been boiled down to the most basic of precepts. And what about your Jesus? You know, what has he done with this? What what has he taken from that? Well, he's taken nothing. Well, then what has he added? And the simple word is himself. Perfection, the state of being holy as God is holy, as demanded by the Torah, by the law of God now consists in following Jesus. The heart of the faith, the heart of our salvation. We need to believe the things that are true, yes, but we need most particularly to encounter the one who is the truth, who is the life, who is the way. I know that for Pope Benedict, his confidence in Jesus, his confidence in the truth that was there allowed him the freedom to explore and to Expressed the fullness of the gifts that God had given him to, to read the studies, to read and, and ponder the deep things. If you haven't seen his Final Testament written in the early days of his papacy, it's worth going and reading. It's fairly short. features the words, stand firm in the faith. Do not let yourselves be confused. It often seems that science, the natural sciences on the one hand, And historical research, especially exegesis of sacred scripture on the other, are able to offer irrefutable results at odds with the Catholic faith. I've experienced the transformations of the natural sciences since long ago and have been able to see how, on the contrary, apparent certainties against the faith have vanished, proving to be not science but philosophical interpretations only apparently Pertaining to science. Just as on the one hand, it is in dialogue with the natural sciences that faith too has learned to understand better the limit of the scope of its claims and thus its specificity. It is now 60 years that I have been accompanying the journey of theology, particularly of the biblical sciences. With the succession of different generations, I have seen theses that seemed unshakable collapse proving to be mere hypotheses. The liberal generation, Harnack, Yulikar, etc. The existentialist generation, Boltmann, etc. The Marxist generation. I saw and see how out of the tangle of assumptions, the reasonableness of faith emerged and emerges again. Jesus Christ is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And the Church with all its insufficiencies is truly his body. There's a confidence in God's truth which allowed him to be patient, to watch, to listen, and to learn, continuing to be faithful, to be deeply humble, despite all of his personal accomplishments. Such surely allowed him to affirm the good in need of continuance within the Church, traditional Mass, things within the Catholic Church, Society of St. Pius X, but also within the Protestant traditions, and especially the Anglican world, for which we're so grateful that he saw the things that could be drawn in, opened up what had been the temporary pastoral provision under St. John Paul the Great, but opened a way through his apostolic constitution for a continuing way to be restored to communion bring in the riches of tradition that had grown with a heart for the Scripture, with a heart in the evangelical life of the church. So much more one could say the danger to simply eulogize him. You do well to read. He's written so much. Read his more devotional works. Read his more scholarly works. Well worth the investment of the time. May he be gathered up in Christ into the full communion of the saints. May he intercede for us in holiness and righteousness in his Lord and ours. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things have passed away and he who sat upon the throne said behold i make all things new Herr jesus dich. amen and amen